This podcast contains information, theories, and speculation based on the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin. It can and will spoil future episodes of the HBO television series Game of Thrones. This is your one and only spoiler warning. If you're looking for our non-spoiler podcast on Game of Thrones, please look at our feed archive for Sunday night and Tuesday afternoon releases or visit baldmove.com for our entire catalog. everybody welcome back to the spoiler edition this time for episode 509 of hbo's game of thrones television series entitled the dance of dragons you know i don't have a whole lot to say in the introduction i think this was a bummer of an episode not not just because the screen was burning now that clearly that that colored a lot of stuff but up to that point i wasn't super impressed with the stuff i was seeing i think that uh you know if you go back and listen to the spoiler editions that I did previously in the season, I was pretty excited about the idea of swapping Jamie and Braun for the two kind of forgettable King's guardians down in Dorne. Uh, and, and, you know, even some of the other changes, I, I was really hopeful that that would be more interesting and somehow they've made it less interesting than it was in the books, which I think is incredible. Uh, I feel like, you know, uh, and, I think that came across in, in the, my choice of uh, audible quote to use. I found the resolution of the Danny Drogon Great Pits scenario less interesting than the book version. Um, you know, and, and the really surprising thing, the thing that they've been able to do well is Arya's plot. And I just feel like they massively crapped a bit on that, that uh, it they they've simultaneously rushed her development as an assassin and also drugged their feet about key reveals to where now the development they're doing in this next this episode and presumably the next just feels kind of rushed and you know i i i, I can't really figure it out um the, the the pacing on this this season outside of hard home and the first few episodes has just been really all over the map it's really uncharacteristic of game of thrones and you know i think as book readers we were looking at this season to see kind of how the double d's would would be flying if, if they had to fly on their own and and even though the results initial results are promising wow uh i'm honestly more worried than ever now maybe part of the problem is having to marry the new stuff that they had to develop to condense dance down to something manageable with the stuff they know George is going to do with, you know, bringing it all together so they can keep telling the story. And, and everyone's first take, I think it's fairly universal that your first go through and, and feast the dance is kind of a, a, what the fuck you have to recalibrate your expectations. You have to get to know a bunch of new characters that you will begin to care for. And and maybe this is kind of the example of the television show going through that awkward phase where they're simultaneously narrowing down and expanding the plot. But I don't know. Uh, I was pretty disappointed in, in the episode. 
Uh, but I don't want to harp too much on that. I do want to talk about Stannis, him being out of character. Because I got a lot of people emailing me, you know, arguing that essentially I was wrong. And I don't I don't think they're wrong. I, I don't think they're wrong. And and I'm going to talk about it now. You know, aside from the points I made in the main cast, which is essentially this is a man who loved his daughter. Maybe the only thing in his world that he truly loves. The fact that this is a man uh, who survived 18 months in a siege, living on nothing but horses, rats, shoe leather, and onions. Uh, this is a guy who would fold up shop, uh, who kept fighting after losing the battle of, of uh, the Blackwater Bay. Uh, this is a man who would fold after a single setback and burn his daughter. And people are like, well, you know, if he didn't do that, then everybody... I'm not arguing that eventually he wouldn't do it. I'm saying the way the show presented it, which is 20 men came and burnt your shit, time to burn your daughter, uh, was too jarring for me, too too much of a character change. And then some, uh, you, someone put, I think two different people sent in the whole, well, you know, every time you hear someone that murders their children, like a Casey Anthony situation, um, everyone always says kind of how shocking it is. And, you know, no one says, oh, yeah, I figured, yeah, I, I had them pegged as a child murderer uh, from way back. That's kind of persuasive, I guess. Um, but, you know, I, I it, all I can say is it didn't ring true for me. Um, and, you know, the thing about the him keeping Storm's End was he was he didn't even personally have a lot of commitment to that issue he was following the orders of a brother that he kind of loathed out of a sense of duty and obligation to the laws of the realm and uh you know support for his family that's the kind of gumption and determination and uh i will not give up attitude that he brings to bear also a couple of a jump uh, a couple of quotes from the books that jumped out at me uh when i was reading covers of the week uh, Stannis quoting, uh, here's a quote from Stannis. Half of my army is made up of unbelievers. I will have no burnings. Pray harder. When people suggested that, uh, they offer up some, some sacrifices to the Lord of light. If the double D's are correct and that this is something that George is eventually going to do in the books, you've got to back, you've got to really logically work backwards or suggest that Stannis is just being mind controlled um, in in some way, which maybe that's the solution. And I don't know where, I don't know how interesting that is. Um, You know, it kind of works in Lord of the Rings. I I talked about Saruman mind controlling Theon or Theoden uh, because we came in at the end of it and he was essentially waking up after doing all these tragic deeds and kind of fiddling while uh, the, the Rohirrim were burning. I don't know if it works that actually watch a man be mind controlled and, and do a bunch of horrible things to his family. We'll see, I guess the other quote is uh, he was given instructions to his men on, on what would happen if he would die. Uh, it says it may be that we shall lose this battle. The King said grimly, this is talking about Stannis here and Bravos. You may hear that I am dead. It may even be true. You shall find my cell swords. Nonetheless, the knight hesitated your grace. If you are dead, you will avenge my death and seat my daughter on the Iron Throne or die in the attempt. Again, this doesn't seem like a man who would jump to burning his only heir, someone he loved, uh, at the drop of the hat. 
But on the other hand, this is the mother, or I'm sorry, this is the man who killed his little brother in cold blood with black magic. This is a man who has allowed men and women to be burned in an offering to appease a God that he doesn't really believe in. This is a man that's renowned throughout the kingdom for his lack of human compassion and mercy. So I don't think it's fair to say it's entirely without his character. It's just not within the on the, the character envelope that I was assigning to, to Stannis. And I do think that George has some work to do if he doesn't want the book reveal to feel very much like the show reveal and, and have a lot of people, you know, being skeptical of, of that change. You know, one final quote from the books that uh, Eric, I brought my attention to that suggests that this may be part of Stannis's overall plot it's a quote, uh, I believe this is from a Davos chapter. He's recounting the tale of the forging of Lightbringer. It says, A hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade. As it glowed white hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nisa, Nisa, he said to her, for that was her name. Bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why I cannot say. And Azora High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of forging of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes. It's possible that they are building towards this as Stannis thinking that he has to do something horrific uh, to secure the, the, the safety of the realm. And I guess it would be in his character if he thought this was the only way. Uh, to sacrifice his daughter, and this does echo, you know, the, what what uh, Azor Ahai here says that know that I love you best of all that it is in this world. You could accurately say that about Sanus too. And I wonder if how dark we're going to get. Is every single hero that we meet in this series going to have, you know, some moment where they have to do something horrific to fully awaken their power? You know, is Bran going to have to eat Jojen? Is Jon going to have to strangle Ghost? Is Stannis going to have to burn her, uh, his daughter? Uh, is Danny going to have to sacrifice one of her dragons? Like, what? What? what is the worst-case scenario for all these things? And is George going to make us endure them all? Um, I don't know. Uh, we will see. The other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, I got a lot of congratulations on my extremely sly... Uh, it will be, it's blindingly obvious what they're going, where, where they're going with, uh, Arya's plot. Uh, cause you know, I've slept, I've slipped in a bunch this, this year. I can't think of any, um, now that I'm on the spot, but if, uh, a little puns that only book readers would get, that's actually not one of them. I had, I was not thinking of that angle. I'm glad it worked that way. And I'm glad people enjoyed it. Um, but I can't rightfully take credit for it. Uh, I was just kind of messing around and, uh, and and struck gold on that one. So thanks to everybody that caught and appreciated that. I should try to do, it's weird because I, it, it try, go, trying and doing it sometimes, I'm worried that it'll be too cute and people will catch on, but it is fun to slip them in there every once in a while where they, where they make sense. Let's move on to the uh, first feedback we got. Double uh, A Ron T said, help me out, fellow double A Ron. I'm actually a single A Ron. That's, that's the, uh, uh, I got a, a the Germanic spelling of Aaron from my from my grandfather, who was a first generation German immigrant. I'm named after him. So, uh, and apparently Germans don't truck with uh, uh, 
vowels that you don't pronounce. So they don't need the double A. They're just a single A. But he says, it does not seem like Melisandre is going back to the wall anytime soon. So what and how the fuck are they going to do Jon Snow? Will they save this for next season? Will they have him just warging the ghost? I've never been very cool with that theory. Fuck John warging. He needs to be in the story in the flesh, even if that's zombie flesh. Lastly, does John really just die? Uh, no. John can't die and stay dead in the sense of no longer being able to take an active role in Westeros. If John dies, that means the R plus L equals J is either flat out wrong or worse, irrelevant. And since that's kind of the Valerian cold rolled steel tin foil of, uh, for which all others are kind of judged, just no fucking way, man. There's no way that he can go away from R plus L equals J at this point. That being said, the burning of Shireen opens up the possibility that Stannis will maybe send Melisandre back to the wall just to get her out of his sight, that he's disgusted. It's a reminder of his failure here. Uh, perhaps after the Battle of Winterfell is over, which is presuming they can get through that um, this episode. Or I guess it could be he sends her back at the end, you know, in the course of this episode, and she makes her way to the beginning of next. I, I don't... I doubt that he actually gets resurrected in this episode. I'm pretty sure they'll kill him. Doubt that they, they get the resur. I, I believe that they'll leave that to be a cliffhanger just like it is in a book because it's an effective one. Uh, I'm not sure what you have against the John Warging theory because the important thing is for his soul to be able to go somewhere after his death so that however his body gets restored either by white undead zombie magic or by Lord of the Light nonsense, he'll be able to quantum leap back into that sexy-ass bot of his. And remember, if it's just Melisandre... Every evidence we see says that bringing someone back using Lord of the Light magic diminishes them uh, in the same way that, you know, a more extreme version of the white magic because the whites come back and they have echoes of their former memory that they can access, apparently, but they don't appear to have any true free will or motivating force. And I think that the more you get resurrected, it seems like that's the more that happens to you with the Lord of the Light stuff. At least that's the experience of Beric and Darien. That's kind of what the hint's going on with Kat and her Lady Stoneheart configuration. So I think you need warging. You need some way to preserve the authentic aspect of someone's intellect and soul. And also, you know, if you look at the the Veramir chapters in Dance of Dragons, um, the whole purpose of those is to suggest that a human can have a second life in an animal. Why throw those in if you don't want to raise the prospect of John warging? Um, also the show has set up a convenient visual motif for warging, you know, the brand's eyes clouding over effect, which they didn't have to do. I mean, we would have all got it. If he touches the trees and his eyelids kind of flutter and close, or, you know, they show his eyes and then summer, uh, they didn't have to do that. And I kind of wonder if they introduced that motif just so they can use that as shorthand without explaining it with John, like John dies, his eyes are open. And then they cloud over white and, uh, you know, white in the sense of color. And then it pans over to to ghost and he kind of like, you know, maybe his ears perk up or there's something that changes in his eyes. Um, you know, maybe he's like going crazy with them. You know, he's chained up or in some other way he's going crazy. And then he, suddenly a calm comes over him. I think that would be kind of cool. Uh, and it would also give the show only guys something to really sink their teeth into in the off season. Like, you know, the same thing we've been debating for years. Exactly. How is this going to come back? How is he going to get out of ghost? How's he going to get resurrected? Is it going to be as a white? Is it going to be with Melisandre comes back, et cetera. So I think it's, 
they've done a good job with everything at the wall and north of the wall. That's the one thing that they I I can't really fault them for at all. I think they've done a really good job on. Jared P. asked a related question. Is there any other way for this season to end with something other than for the watch? I understand the value of the cliffhanger, but has the show done a good enough job setting up an outcome other than death for Jon Snow? Personally, I was hoping for an optimistic end to this season. Danny moving on Westeros, Sansa going to take back the North, something. One or both may happen, but not at the end. Jon will die and end the season. Yeah, I actually was surprised. I thought that they would have Danny's ride on Drogon be the very last thing we see for all the reasons you said. Um, you know, I was underwhelmed by it. I thought the book version was better, but it's still a hell of a moment in the show and a great kind of finally moment for show watchers that have been waiting for something like this. So the way I see it, there's a couple things that could go down this this uh, finale. You could have the Battle Winterfell. I think that's too long and complicated to complete this season. I'd be surprised if they show much of it at all. I think they'll show like the prelude uh, of it. Um, I'm thinking Davos will either replace the pink letter or he'll, he'll arrive just before John gets the actual pink letter. And that will rouse John to uh, with, with the knowledge that Ramsey has a sister. And I'm still finding it hard to believe that John will abandon his post for any reason at this point in a post hard home world, but whatever uh, John's death, is probably what they'll close on now. That's probably going to be the hammer. Uh, a small moment of triumph for Sansa. Perhaps she escapes with Theon while Ramsey's away. Um, as a closing moment, that would be kind of uplifting. Arya being blinded as punishment for killing Marin Trant because that seems like it's certain to go down. Um, you know, that would be cool. I would I would like to see her kill Marin Trant and just ignore the Thin Man, get blinded as a punishment, and then come back and do the Thin Man right uh, to show kind of in a ham-fisted way how immature she was, you know, before Marin Trant and like, you know, her awkward spying and how obvious her assassination attempt was going to be with the vinegar and, and the, the clams, oysters and cockles to her post-blindness awesomeness. I, I don't know if I think that's the greatest way to handle it, but I could see them thinking along those lines. Um, you got Cersei Shamewalk and reveal of Sir Robert Strong, which is kind of going to be awesome. Uh, for both of those reasons, and also the return and then early departure of Kevin Lannister, which they set up last episode or this episode. Um, and I wonder if they'll give us like the poo-poo platter version of this, where they'll set up all these threads in motion throughout the scene, the the, the hour. And then the last five minutes, you'll have 30-second vignettes to see like Theon and Sansa trekking through the snow. Um Arya wake you know waking up from taking whatever medicine and she's blind and that that that's the reveal um and they kind of go through this uh you know Cersei finishing her shame walk and 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 tearfully approaching the red keep and she sees Sir Robert the Strong and's like excellent um Varys popping up and killing Kevin Lannister and monologuing a bit and then that leads right into the for the watch moment it would be kind of cool to like have the final 10 minutes be all the best parts of the episode all crammed one right after another. So it's just kind of like this breathless runaway freight train feeling because otherwise, I mean, they got to do something special uh, or I think there's going to be a lot of people that are not as excited about next year of Game of Thrones as they could be. Next up, Dan, I was watching an inside episode of the latest Game of Thrones, and David Benioff said something that caught my interest. When talking about the death of Shireen, he said, when George first told us about this, 
Does that mean this is a book spoiler? Are we to assume that in the winds of winter or a dream of spring, Stannis will sacrifice Shireen? Will Melisandre and Selyse sacrifice Shireen in Stannis' absence? Or is George merely making a suggestion for the direction of the show? I want to get your take on this and see what you thought. Well, Dan, I thought um, the way it was worded kind of implies that George told them it was a major plot point that might it not necessarily go down this way in the books. Um, another way you could say this is me. That George is like, hey, it'd be cool in the show if you did this. And that offers up some delicious speculation that maybe George is like secretly sabotaging the show to make sure that it's the shittier version of the books. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that he's that kind of person to do that, but I think it's that's kind of funny. Um, in the books, I, you know, I hope they do a better job of selling us the desperation of the moment uh, or for the stakes to be much, much higher for Stannis to pull this shit. Uh, I like your suggestion that Mel and Selyse could be behind it. Melisandre and Selyse. Uh, if that's the case, though, why fuck with Stannis' character like they did on the show? Like, I get the whole Martin's razor and character economy, but, you know, if Selyse and, Mel- and Melisandre end up burning her in the books against Stannis' wishes or without his knowledge or consent, I'll be pissed that they did this in the show. Because it's a, you can't root for Stannis after this. Like, everybody making apologies for James. There's a difference from pushing out the uh, youngest son of a northern lord that you're a rival, someone you don't give a shit about, uh, out the window to cover up your incestuous relationship with your sister. not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that is a huge step down in, in, like, no point of return than burning your own daughter that just three episodes ago you confessed your love for. At least to me, you know, uh, I don't think Jamie would push his own kid out the boat. So there's like a limit to like how foul his behavior. If you burn your own daughter for a cause you believe in, what the hell won't you do? That's, that's kind of the difference I see in there. Um, so, the other thing I want to talk about is that some have suggested that this awkward shot of Melisandre looking into the flames as Stannis' camp starts to burn around her indicates that she knew the attack was coming, but chose not to tell Stannis so that he would be desperate enough to allow his daughter to be burnt so that she can then do, try some of this impressive blood magic she's been trying to work up. And I think that's an interesting angle, but I'd like to see it confirmed either next season or better yet in a Melisandre POV chapter in Winds of Winter. I mean, we already know that Melisandre is manipulating Stannis and others around her to believe that she's more powerful. She is, but we don't know to what end, and I'd like to see some more uh, evidence for that. Patience B says, Do you think it's possible that Dorne has spies like so many others do? Has he received word of what's happening in King's Landing? Maybe he has no reason to fear Cersei. He could see Jaime as a decent guy, and this would make sending his sons to King's Landing feel safe to do. He knows Marcella is in danger in Dorne. Doran seems to have a good heart and genuinely care about Marcella for far more than for political reasons. I believe that Tristane truly loves his betrothed. Either everyone, or I'm sorry, everyone knows that Tommen is sweet and certainly no Joffrey, and King's Landing is clearly the better bet to keep Marcella and his son safe. On a side note, realistically, how much time should go by before everyone knows that Cersei is in a cell and King's Landing is ripe for the taking by anyone with half a brain? Well, if Doran has spies, then he should know that Tommen isn't exactly in charge of King's Landing. And yeah, maybe Jamie is a good dude. And maybe Marcella is in danger. But to send your heir as a hostage to King's Landing to your sworn enemy is just foolhardy, unless he has a truly epic plan. And honestly, I'll be very disappointed if we get through the finale this weekend without knowing any more than we already do about Dorne and Prince Doran's 
plot. We need some version of his vengeance, justice, fire, and blood speech to make Dorne even remotely worth it. And it's got to be better. I mean, honestly, if it's just deploying Quentin at this point, I'll be pissed. Because we already know Quentin doesn't go anywhere in the books. Or at least I'd be surprised if he, you know, they pull a, he's not as badly hurt as as, as everyone thinks. Um, and that it's all a ruse. And he's, I, I'm, I, eh. So I need to see that that kind of speech with some real fire in its belly applied to a really solid plan B in Doran's arsenal, or I'm going to be, you know, I I just won't understand what they've been doing in Dorne. Like why do Dorne at all? If you're not going to make it compelling. Um, and maybe it was a miscalculation. Maybe they thought the sand snakes would be pop more popular than they are, but you know, it's boring. They kind of fucking ruin the Lari as a character. The Sand Snakes haven't been well established as 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 really good bad guys or bad good guys or anything like that. And Jamie and Dorn have been kind of a waste of their characters. So as a side note, uh, for your side note, Cersei will most certainly be out of the clutches of the High Sparrow before the end of the finale and arguably more dangerous than ever, judging by her internal monologue on seeing Robert Strong for the first time. Also, I know some people hinted that maybe the reveal for Dorne will be that he's hiding Aegon or Fagon, if you think he's the fake Aegon. But honestly, I don't see the show indulging in either Quentin or Aegon. Those are likely fake-outs in the book and not important to the main storyline. Um, there's even a lot of tinfoil evidence that suggests that Danny has been told in prophecy that these are all fakes and pretenders that are not going to ultimately matter to a hill of beans. So even internally within the larger A Song of Ice and Fire universe, that makes sense too. So... I don't see the show indulging in fake outs and, and diversions because um, they don't typically do that. They adapt the material they think is crucial somewhat m more successfully than most. Usually this season's they just had a bad, bad run of luck. Uh, Tomer brought my attention to a new uh, George Martin live journal entry. Uh, he says, as far as the Knight's King in the books, he's a legendary figure akin to Land the Clever and Brandon the Builder and no more likely to have survived in the present than they have today or than they have rather. This was from this week on his live journal and he was talking about the Knight's King. I thought that was interesting that he says in the books as he allows for the TV shows to be different. But if so, the TV show, I think, is even less likely to indulge in ancient stories and prophecies than the books. Indeed, Damn near all the prophecy that we kind of obsess over as book readers has been excised by the show. So my read on this is that a lot of the stuff about the Night's King having connections to the ancient Starks and to the Night's Watch is just not going to matter or be incorrect, which is sad because there's a lot of good lore to build on there. My guess is that the legends are going to be interesting for what they tell us about the current characters and foreshadowing their fates, not so much in the sense of them having predictive powers or allusions to something grander. I mean... Maybe that makes sense. We've got the legend of the rat cook told to us, which is an obvious commentary on the Frey betrayal of Rob Stark. But nobody seriously suggests that Walder Frey is the fucking rat king reborn. He has become the rat king of prophecy. He is the rat cook with his ladle, rat bringer, sent by the Night's King to eat every last fucking chicken in his fucking room. I mean, you know sometimes that can just be a literary device to show parallels and foreshadow. It doesn't have to be like a, a, a literal coming true of every single prophecy. And sometimes prophecies can be wrong. Uh, and which ones you listen to, which sources they come uh, from are important. So maybe we're just taking some of this shit that old Nan said a little too seriously. 
She's just a crazy old lady telling bedtime stories to frightened children. Maybe. Josh H. said, in the Hard Home main cast, you and Jim were discussing Valerian steel blades that were known, and you had mentioned ice. You were saying, given its name, perhaps it was meant to kill the others, but it reminded me of a quote from the first book that gave me a different idea. The quote's from the very first Catelyn chapter as she watches Ned clean ice. 400 years old it was, and as sharp as the day it was forged. The name it bore was older still, a legacy from the Age of Heroes, when Starks were kings in the north. Now granted, perhaps the original ice was some sort of old Bronze Age blade, but I have another theory. Could it be the blade of an other? Perhaps worn one in combat, perhaps as a result of a truce? Perhaps one of the early long nights ended at Winterfell, perhaps giving the ancient keep its name as the place where winter literally fell? I actually think that's pretty cool, Josh. I'm not sure how we'd ever find out if it was true, but it's a nice headcanon you've got there. And until you included that quote, I had completely forgotten that ice wasn't a truly ancient ancestral blade. As far as Winterfell goes, the name could hold a lot of different meanings. As you suggest, it can literally mean the place where winter is broken, uh, which could refer to some ancient battle against the White Walkers, or it could mean that Winterfell is traditional stronghold of the north that northern commoners flock to. They have this whole winter's town right outside the gates of Winterfell. Because it's capable of staying warm. It's got geothermal vents, and it's built on hot springs. It keeps it warm. It's got the glass garden, so it can produce food throughout the harshest of winters. Uh, And it's the key to the north for surviving this winter. Uh, Fell can also mean cruel or terrible or fierce. It could just be more northern fatalism, like winter is coming. So it's all interesting stuff. Um, and you know, dap for you, if it turns out that one of the secrets in the crypts of Winterfell is a badass uh, other blade that, that comes in, uh, important later on the season or series, but we'll have to see. Nick W says something I noticed in my first watch of episode nine dance of dragons was this letter that Stannis gives to Davos to deliver to Jon Snow at the wall. I know that most watchers realize this is a plot device to drive Davos away from Stannis' camp. But from a book reader's perspective, is this letter supposed to be the infamous pink letter from the books, supposedly written by one Ramsay Snow Bolton and delivered to Jon Snow before his stabbing? If so, it seems odd that Davos is delivering the letter as opposed to sending the letter via Raven, especially if the author of the pink letter is supposed to be a suspenseful item of discussion like it is for us book readers. Are we as book readers supposed to infer that Stannis is the author of the pink letter and the contents within are inherently false just to invoke a reaction from John so that he can send troops and supplies to Winterfell. The letter, instead of being as it is in the book, could be a straightforward note from Stannis informing John of how his men are dying, his supplies have been burned, and he needs help from John to defeat the Boltons. Stannis could also pull a Ramsay has Theon and Sansa angle if he knows about such from Melisandre or rumblings around his camp and use that as a last chance to get John's help. So as you point out in your email, the problem with Davos being the carrier of the pink letter is that it's hard to believe that anything in there could move John to leave the wall at this point. And if Stannis is the uh, this obviously the writer of the pink letter, then most of what is fascinating about it from a book analysis perspective is missing. But what if Stannis tells a fib about who Ramsay is holding as his wife? What if in the show he lies and tells John it's all about Arya? One thing that I think the show did very well in season one is establish how much John meant to Arya and vice versa. And that point has been fuzzily kept in the minds of the show watchers via Arya's attachment to Needle, which of course was John's gift. John thinking that Arya was in danger is the only thing I think plausibly would have him be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm leading a ranging party straight up Ramsey's asshole. 
And they could just show Arya and John in the needle scene on a previously on Game of Thrones. And I think viewers would be on the same page. Do I buy that he would have the same reaction as Sansa? If so, I think it would be more of an intellectual sense of duty. And, well, it's my last family member. Maybe I should go save them. Uh, although he knows about Bran and Rickon and the TV show, which is different from the books. But Arya, I would buy. Arya, I would buy that he would betray his duty to go save her. Now, that would also give us a little bit of intrigue surrounding this letter. Not like in the books, like it's a whodunit, but more the show pink letter is all about Stannis sitting on his throne of lies made of Shireen ashes and what that means for John, because viewers might be shitting their pants thinking, oh God, John is going to be walking to a trap featuring not just one, but two madmen. And we know Mel is hot for John's blood and this is going to be bad. And then bam, they hit us for, uh, with the For the Watch moments and the Etu Ollie moments, and I think that would be pretty satisfying because they're looking at this one possible danger, just kind of like we are in the show with this this or the books, this this pink letter overtly threatening John, and then boom, they hit us with the For the Watch moment. So I think that would be kind of cool. Allison T has some questions about Cersei's prophecy from earlier in the season. At what point was the purpose, or at this point, what is the purpose of having a flashback? I mean, I guess they may tie it back together here in the last episode somehow, but since they left out the whole thing about the Valonqar, or whatever, it seems strange that they went through the effort to put that in. They made a big deal about how they were never going to include flashbacks and all this stuff, and so it was a big deal, and this episode is going to have a flashback, but to me, that didn't really seem to worth be worth all the hype, and I was super excited about it being there. I mean... She hasn't referred to it at all, and we haven't seen any more glimpses of it. Plus, I feel like this last episode is going to be so crammed full of stuff. Why bring a flashback into it as well? Well, Allison, I'm still holding out hope for the Valonqar stuff, and I appreciate you reminding me because i just about forgotten it, uh, the way the season opened. I said at the time that the way the scene was filmed to me opened up the possibility that there is a part two to this vision where they will fill in the part about the little brother murdering her. And I could see them revisiting this in the episode as Cersei sits and reflects in jail to book in the season. Or I could see them opening next season with part two of the vision. And presumably this will be interesting because Cersei is unreasonably afraid of Tyrion. And him advising Danny will kick those fears into overdrive. Just like her reminiscing on the earlier first part of the prophecy had her unreasonably fixate on um, Marjorie to her detriment. So I think a lot of sharp viewers will have a field day with the Younger Brother theories in the same way that we do, since they essentially have the same info. Foe. Oh, I bet it's Jamie. Oh, I bet it's the Hound. I bet it's Bran fucking Stark all warged up in the Hodor, etc. I mean, that's fun to do. And I hope that the show puts fun little tinfoil theories for the listeners to pick up on. That would be cool. Uh, Allison also did a bit of Greyjoy speculation that I'm going to save for next week because we're going to be tearing into casting news uh, for season six next week, and we will have a lot of Iron Islanders salivating over this information because they're totally grossed that way, just drooling around and and uh, you know going around in their boats and and having their smoking hands of doom and all that kind of stuff. They'll be happy though. Rusty A said. Arya's story could go one of three ways. Cool. Arya returns to the brothel, gets chosen by Trant, and poisons him before he can have his way with her. Way too predictable, he says. Cooler. Faced with the choice between personal revenge and continuing her assassin training, Arya lets Trant leave the city, figuratively severing her ties to her past and becoming no one, which he deems is the most likely to happen. And coolest, we see another underage girl being chosen by Trant. 
They go into the bedroom. Before he can have his way with her, Trant falls to the ground, poisoned and dying. The girl pulls off a mask, revealing the killer to be Arya, saying, that's for Serio Pharrell. So, there's no way in hell we get the cooler version, which is I, I, you said you think is the most likely, because Arya's not ready to become no one yet. Jacken has said it. The Waif has said it. Her bearing needle has said it. I just don't see it. I also don't see the coolest version happening either because if Jaken gives her a face when he knows, and I do believe he knows, I mean, come on, that she's lying to his face and going off script on her mission, then he's a fool. Which leaves us the cool version in which she kills Trant for revenge and is punished by Jaken, again, probably by blinding her. That's what I think is going to go down. Josh L. says, I have to credit the History of Westeros podcast for this, but I also agree with the prediction that the Harpies will try to slay Rhaegal and Viserion after witnessing the danger of Drogon last week. That's how those two will get out. It's only a matter of time before they're big enough to break those chains, and I'm guessing our last shot of Marine this season will be Tyrion, Jorah, and Dario at Al, witnessing from the top of the pyramid the two remaining dragons going nuts on Marine. I think that is a fantastic take, Josh. I'd love to see the Harpies overreach and try to kill the dragons only to get all Quintoned. I'd love to see the two dragons nesting on top of the pyramids as you look out and the city's kind of partially in flames. I think that'd be a very cool visual image to end on. Um, by the way, the History of Westeros podcast is great if you all haven't tried it. I haven't had much time to listen to other podcasts this season with my expanded spoiler duties and me and Jim feverishly working on our coverage for season one of True Detective, but... They were a mainstay for me last year, and they had some really excellent information. Thomas J. So Ollie's definitely going to be the Brutus to John Caesar, and Double D's love to continue the trend of Sam accidentally giving him advice, which will ultimately not go well for John. If in Elio and Linda's review of Hardhome, they pointed out how giving Ollie the for the watch moment would cheapen it as it becomes about a single disagreement with the action rather than institutional rebellion, which made me wonder if they can pull off the institutional rebellion side convincingly. The only named characters in the Night's Watch are Sam, Ed, and Alistair Thorne. Sam won't partake in it. At this point, do you feel this moment can be pulled off despite the distance from the Night's Watch? Yeah, I mean, I think they can pull it off. The question is, can they pull it off well? And they have made it a point to show Bowen Marsh and introduce him by name at least once earlier in the season and show the other high mucky mucks of the watch, um, you know, all frowning and looking disapproving and kind of like a little, you know, cluster of, of hens clucking. Um, so they get their faces in front of the viewers. And that might be news to you because while the camera swings on them every time John mutters about his decisions being unpopular with them, I don't think Jim would be able to identify who or what they are at gunpoint. Uh, I think Elio and Linda, though, missed their mark. It's not like it's only going to be Ollie that does the stabbing. It's going to be Ollie front and center with maybe Alistair Thorne and other less recognizable brothers lined up behind them. Hell, they might throw in Dolores Ed there, too, except I think after last episode, Hard Home, that him and John are solid again. But I would argue that they more than established the fact that the old school hardline brothers just don't agree with John and they think that he's dangerous and Ollie's just thrown in there to give us that recognizable face and to make the betrayal more shocking and personal. I'll be disappointed, honestly, if it's if it's just a solo act. I mean, going back to the Caesar thing, I just got lis done listening to Dan Carlin's uh, um, Death Throes of the Old Republic um, and he talks about how, you know, Brutus was kind of a protege 
of Caesar, and maybe this that that assassination wouldn't be as popular in in the public's imagination if it wasn't for that personal angle. If it was just business, it's not as interesting if, as if it's personal. So I don't think it's going to be just Ollie. That's dumb. If it is, that is dumb. But I think Ollie frontlining it, or even being the second or third knives going into to John, that's that's where it'll be effective because it adds that emotion to it. You also mentioned you don't personally buy Alistair Thorne assassinating John. I didn't read that part of your email, but you alluded to it, that he's too much of a good guy in the show. I don't actually think that's true because I think Alistair can kill John and not have it be personal. You know, it's like you got a good heart, kid, but you're going to kill us all. I thought that was a great line. But I will say it would be kind of cool if Alistair actually tries to defend John and is, ends up being killed as well. That'd be a nice moment, like, say what you will about Thorne, but when the chips are down and the choices are stark, he's loyal to his vows and to his watch and his Lord Commander. That would kind of be an interesting redemption for for him. Donnie from Georgia says, I have a theory. Going off the idea that Jack and Hagar is Syrio, could the look that Jack and gave Arya when she told him the thin man wasn't hungry, him debating to tell her that he, Syrio, wasn't dead after all, that he knew Arya saw Myron Trant and wants to exact her revenge? He would have to know that Marin Trant was in town. You know, Donnie, I would actually pee myself a little bit if it was there was even a glimmer of direct evidence from the show that Serio is Jacken, that that theory is correct. But no, I think you're reading too much into the scene. But your heart's in the right place. To be honest, while my little boy heart would love to see Serio turn out to be Jacken, my grown-ass man heart is starting to appreciate the motif of Arya learning from her mentors and killing and taking pieces from each and moving on and become a stronger person. Sirio, the Hound, Jacken, arguably even Roos and Tywin. I like how she's being shaped in, in ways both subtle and gross to be this, this ultimate revenge machine. And I think George is going to lose some of that if it turns out that Arya is some River Tam-esque long-term project by the Faceless Men that they've had their eyes on since she was born which is what the ultimate expression of the serial equals Jack and theory is right. That this is like this big conspiracy and that he was there all the, the whole time and assigned to Aria, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, before you ask, yes, I did do a spoiler segment on Jack and theories last season in episode 409. And as always, you can find a complete archive of the previous spoiler topics linked in every one of the show notes, which you can find accompanying the podcast on our website at baldmove.com, or it's probably exposed somewhere in your podcasting app, like the one that I use, Pocket Cast on Android. You swipe left uh, to see the show notes uh, for a particular show, and I'm sure it's similar or some other way to do it on, on iOS devices and other uh, apps. Anyway, this brings us to the tinfoil topic. And I was going to do a tinfoil topic on the identity of the Sons of the Harpy from the book perspective, because it seems relevant uh, after this week's episode. And I've been plugging in the Miranese blot blog for some time now, because I think it's the best, most on-point analysis of the whole Marine situation in Feast or Dance, especially if you hate the Danny sequences of the books. I think you really need to read this Untangling the Miranese Not Essays, which you can find those at the miraneseblot.wordpress.com or by just Googling Miranese Blot. Uh, since Miranese has kind of got that whole Mississippi thing where there's just an improbable number of E's and consonants and weird orders, and I find it as hard to remember how to spell right as Daenerys Targaryen, which is another fucking surprisingly hard thing to spell accurately, at least for my dumbass. But then I got two emails late in the week from fans who were spinning show foil of the highest grade. Uh, 
which, you know, again, is still tinfoil. And I decided to go with them instead. And this is going to be the last of the tinfoil segments because next week we'll be discussing casting news in its place. And in fact, this might be the reg- last regular tinfoil segment for several years because, you know, please, George, for the sake of this segment, finish wins before next season. Preferably have it out by Christmas, number one, uh, so so I can get it as a present and, and spend my Christmas break reading it. Number two, so all the lunatics on Reddit and the Citadel can work it over with pipes and blowtorches and extract some truly excellent tinfoil from it in time for the podcast. Please, pretty please, for the sake of this spoiler segment, I would really appreciate it. Signed, Aaron, your fan. As it is, this is the 20th tinfoil podcast I've done. And with three two-part topics, that's 17 individual theories. And that's a lot. It's actually kind of crazy to think that there's so many interesting theories with just two books to go. And you can you can quibble about, you know, okay, well, one of those was the Varys as a mermaid, and one of those was Roos as a vampire, but still interesting stuff. Uh, for those of you interested in the book angle on the Sons of Harpies, the too long didn't read version is it's either the Shave Pate or Resnick or Hisdar. And it's probably the shave pate, which is ironic because it might turn out that the Sons of Harpies had nothing to do with the attempt on Danny's life at all, except that they totally do in the show. So now what? Well, here's your now what in the following emails. Barrett R. has a tinfoil theory that Varys, Varys is behind the Sons of Harpy. We haven't seen Varys this season, perhaps as a long setup to reveal that he is behind the Sons of the Harpy. They've been teasing that he could be some one close to Danny and that he that could be to throw us off the real trail we know Varys can exert influence across the narrow sea it's possible he sent his little birds ahead to move events around Danny I believe he genuinely wants to see her succeed so the question is what would be his motive to me it fits that he would want to make the environment in Essos undesirable to push her to move across to Westeros and we know that he is on the continent but has not presented himself Surely, if he wanted to be seen by Danny, he would be seen by now. If Jorah and Tyrion went the scenic route, there had been ample time for him to reach Tyrion, uh, search for Tyrion, give up, and then head for Danny. The only mystery in Essos this season are where's Varys and who's behind the harpy? As a final thought on the theory, why would Varys risk such an action? He knows she has survived much more and now has Barristan and other skilled fighters around to protect her. So. I don't think that Varys is really behind the Sons of Harpy. But if he is, I'll say that while she has arguably survived worse, inciting a citywide revolt against her is pretty risky, even with Barristan or Jorah or Dario or whomever around the the protector. I mean, shit happens, and that's a really high-stakes play for Varys to make. Which brings me to the next email from the enigmatically named Tree Killer. Um, Don't let Bran find out. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's bad juju with the old gods. Anyway, Tree Killer says, on the show, it has been an open question who the Sons of the Harpy were. The leader has been either Hisdar or Dario. In my humble opinion, it's now confirmed to be Dario, as Hisdar is dead, killed by the Sons of the Harpies. Killing her own leader would, after all, gain them nothing. One, motive. The Sons of the Harpy are a false flag operation with the intent of inciting Danny to kill all of the former masters. I like starting off with a false flag operation. We're in, we're in loose change territory. They were originally composed of the Second Sons, but initiated a f- few freedmen later on. This is why we now see some Sons of the Harpy in slave dress. They're led by the Harpy, a.k.a. Dario. He was a slave and he hates the masters. That is why he got the, sons, the Second Sons to join Danny in the hopes of overthrowing and killing them. Okay, 
if this is true, why is he lobbying Danny to get the fighting pits back open? I mean, I agree. It seems like the sons of Harpy are at least equally comprised of the former masters as, or excuse me, the former slaves as they are of the former masters, if not more so. It's the former slaves who have really gotten the shaft in Danny's regime, if you think about it. She executed their representative on her council. She's allowed the fighting pits to reopen, which seem popular, but we know these aren't free man fighting. And the Harpies might know that as well, which would anger them and make them think Danny's a fool. We know the crowd at large went from Misa, Misa to in a single scene, so that anger is very real. Back to Tree Killer's point. The turning point. At first, this all goes as planned. They take Yunkai. They move on the Marine. But after they leave Yunkai, the wise masters reassert themselves. This convinces Dario that all the masters must be killed. He's happy when Danny sends him and the second sons to retake Yunkai and to kill all the wise masters. But at the last minute, Jor convinces her to send his dart to negotiate. And she instructs him to tell Dario that it was Jorah who changed her mind. Unfortunately for him, his dar is unsuccessful, and they agree to reabolish slavery if the mixed slave master council is established and the fighting pits are reopened. This is the key moment when he decides that she will not kill the masters unless she is, she's forced to. The plan. Dario must first eliminate his advisors to Danny, rival advisors to Danny. Who's the first to go? Jorah. A boy gives a scroll to Sir Bar- Barristan that implicates Jorah as a spy. Jorah first says that this comes from Tywin, but is unlikely for several reasons. Why does Tywin care? When Joffrey mentions Danny in the small council, he dismisses her as a threat. Also, does he even know that Jorah has joined Danny and is no longer a spy? How could he? Dario is behind this. Let me ask you a relevant question. How would Dario know that Jorah is the traitor? I mean, I can't believe it could be a lucky guess. And it's hard to argue that Tywin wouldn't care, as he cared very much about it in the show, citing her three dragons and skilled advisors as something as uh, to, to be a threat. And who else would send the scroll but Tywin? Who else would have access to the spy documentation that was signed in the king's own hand? At this time, he also forms the Sons of the Harpy. The Sons of the Harpy, as I said previously, are a false flag operation. They want people to think they are the masters. If the Sons of Harpy were really great masters, why would they dress as them? They wear a mask to hide their face, but not their class? This only makes sense in the context of a false flag. But then White Rat is killed by the Sons of the Harpy. Dario knows where the Sons of the Harpy is hiding because he is their leader. Why does he want them arrested? Because he gambles that Masador will kill him, and then Danny will execute Masador, turning the slaves against Danny. Then she will have to kill the masters to appease them. Tellingly, Dario says there's no need to question the son of the harpy because he has already done so. He doesn't want Danny to discover that the sons of the harpy is in fact a second son. Cleverly, this also eliminates Masador as a rival advisor. And here's where I think the theory starts to have some legs. Maybe Jorah getting exiled was just a fortunate occurrence to him, which maybe even emboldened him to take action against his other Danny's other's advisors. I don't know if Dario ever truly respected Barristan, for example. I thought he saw them as maybe too over the hill and uh, far too sentimental. Continuing, he says, Next, he plans to eliminate Hisdar, Grey Worm, and Sir Barristan in one fell swoop. When Danny is holding court, he tells her that Sir Barristan doesn't need to be there, so Sir Barristan goes to patrol with Grey Worm. Seizing the opportunity, he stages a massive attack by the Son of the Harpy. He kills Barristan, but fails to kill... Grey Worm, then he advises her to round up the leaders of the families, including his dar. His plan is foiled again when he instead marries her. 
this stops the attacks, and he accuses Hisdar of being their leader, but this doesn't work, so he decides to kill him. He stages the attacks in a fighting pit. If Hisdar is the only one killed, it ruins the false flag because Hisdar is a master, but if he's killed in the chaos, it provides cover. Also, both the second sons and sons of the harpy feature sons in their name. True, and this is a show change because in the books, they're the storm crows. I can actually see this as kind of supporting the evidence that Euron and Dario are the same person, as we discussed a few weeks earlier, uh, because Euron's motivation to get Danny to leave Essos ASAP uh, would line up here as well. And what better way to get her to abandon her cause than to see it as hopeless? But on the other hand, it's a bit of a spoiler for the next podcast where we consider casting news, but apparently they're holding a casting call for Euron Greyjoy right now. If they're different people in the show, there's no way they can be the same people in the book. Is it possible that the Sons of the Harpy are essentially a leaderless movement of the people? Because if you don't buy that, then they have to have a leader. And the assumption is it has to be a leader that we already know to have any kind of impact. With Hisdar dead, the only real suspect is Dario. Who else could it be? I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Is it possible that the Sons of the Harpy are a leaderless movement? Uh, who is exactly behind them? Do you need it to be someone that we know and have met already for that to be interesting to you? Uh, as I mentioned in the main cast, that could be fulfilled just by having it be uh, the warlocks of Karth or the merchant kings of Karth. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could resolve this, but I thought this was interesting and maybe could use some more some more research and some more thought to it. Anyway, as always, if you enjoyed this uh podcast please consider helping support jim and i making our free content available by joining our club at club.baldmove.com lots of cool features ad free feeds you never have to listen to me talk about this crap again you get access to expanded content like our lunch with jim and aarons uh our uh live taping of our podcast uh some other things like live watches that we'll probably be getting back to doing with the new walking dead coming out this summer and a lot more things that that we're about to debut. And and most importantly, it helps us continue doing what we're doing because we just simply couldn't do it without your direct support. Uh, if that's too much for you, again, amazon.baldmove.com. If you're shopping on Amazon, please remember to use that link because it's free to you. It costs you nothing. You get the full Amazon experience. It just, We just get a tiny cut of Amazon's profit. It doesn't cost you more in shipping or handling or anything like that. Amazon.baldmove.com. And for everyone that has supported us, thank you from the bottom of my heart. We'll be back next week with another uh, spoiler edition. We'll be back uh, Sunday night with the Instant Cast. Uh, You can send in feedback at Game of Thrones at BaldMove.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Until the next time, have a great weekend.